Well, we are back after a hiatus uh, to do our last chapter. This doesn't mean that this will be the last class that we do. Uh, I think we'll have some kind of conversation about Zoom or I, I would like to do some way for folks who maybe can't get out for a Wednesday Vespers and then sticking around to maybe have an option where we have a live class here and then people could, you know, join in as it were because Zoom at least allows us to have some back and forth that live streaming on YouTube doesn't really provide for us. Um, so we'll, we'll see when we put our heads together on that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll ask people. I'm presuming that may, me, means, Reed, you're now a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> you have been appointed. Just kidding. Unless you really want to, that's fine. Uh, so let's... Um, We'll start with prayer, and then we will be diving into uh, the last chapter of Romans with St. John Chrysostom, our trusted saintly guide. All right. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings. And plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires when we enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well-pleasing unto you, for you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to you do we ascribe glory together with your Father, who is from everlasting, you're all holy, good, my creating spirit, now and ever into ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Next time we do something like this, I'm definitely starting with O Heavenly King, because I'm missing O Heavenly King right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, we've got four days to go? <laughs> yeah, we're right. We're right there. Okay, well, let me start us in. Let me see if I can share my screen. Uh, says you need to let me sh share my screen. Try now. Ah, that's very promising. There we go. Okay, so. Um, yeah, so this is Romans chapter 16, our final uh, chapter in the study of Romans. There's a lot of wonderful material from St. John Chrysostom tonight. I'm looking forward to this. Um, so I hope you'll all enjoy it. Uh, could I ask someone very kindly to read for us just the first two verses of chapter 16? Okay, I can read it. Thank you. I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Thank you, Daniel. So, um, St. John here comments that St. Paul is proclaiming the dignity of Phoebe in several ways. First of all, he's the first, or she's the first person he mentions. He also calls her his sister, and he mentions her rank of deaconess. And then, having opened with Phoebe's praises, he begins to make a request for her. He asks the Romans to receive her in the Lord, which he understands to mean to show her honor for the Lord's sake. And he says, now this by itself would have been enough to call them to be attentive to her, Yet St. Paul goes further and tells them to receive her in a manner, manner worthy of saints. And in his reading, it's not worthy of the saints, but simply worthy of saints. So receive her in a manner worthy of saints, indicating that she is a saint herself. Thus, both in be, being received for the Lord's sake and in being a saint, she should receive the Romans' attentiveness to her. And then he goes on and asks them to help her give her such assistance as she may need, or it could be translated as she may ask for, which St. John says is not a burdensome request, but a very modest one. And then he picks up his praises of her again, um, saying, uh, so what he's doing is kind of sandwiching his, his request between two expressions of her praiseworthiness. And um, St. John says that this latter praise is greater than the former, in that he says that she was a helper of many, including St. Paul himself. Um, and, and the way St. John describes it is, 
she's the one who has given aid to him who had set the whole world right, who had been the herald of the world, who had suffered so much and given aid to tens of thousands. And so he sees this as remarkably high praise that she's a woman who was helping the man, the apostle who had done and suffered so very much. And so then St. John says, uh, she's been set before us as an example to imitate and not only her, but the next woman whom the apostle is about to name together with that woman's husband. So are there any questions or comments so far? Just a clarifying question. The New King James, the English translation there just says servant. Are they trying to gloss over the actual Greek there? Well, actually, uh, St. John later in his commentary on this chapter discusses that at some length, evidently saying, now the, the word just bare by itself could be taken to mean either servant or the actual office of deaconess. And right. then he explains why his reading of it is very definitely the office of deaconess. Which existed. Yes. They were actually in the East, uh, they were actually ordained at the altar. Mm -hmm. uh, just like a deacon. It, they, they, well, I don't want to get sidetracked too much. I wrote a paper on it in seminary. So. Okay. There, there's a. Go ahead. Well, it was, um, as I recall, Catholic.com had an article saying that deaconesses assisted at the baptism of women, but that they were not serving as ordained ministers in the same way that deacons today do. So, correct. There are differences between the Latin tradition going back even uh, versus the kind of Greek tradition. I'll just use those ways of describing the difference. Um, but yes, they did not, they assisted in baptism early on and they did not have a liturgical function, uh, in the services. Uh, they were basically, it was an office that if you look later, uh, you know, like 800, 900, you know, early thousands, you're looking at, I forget exactly when it fell out of use, but basically it was kind of an honorary thing given to abbesses. It's basically what it boiled down to. Uh, and they were deaconesses because they specifically helped things function and work. I mean, they had an office of service. So mm -hmm. it basically shifted over time. And then because that shift, it also has went out of use and practice. Uh, actually, in Africa, if I'm remembering correctly, I'd have to go back. I know, I'm pretty sure the Patriarch of Alexandria actually made some deaconesses. He did not do it according to the ancient way to do it that we have, uh, that we have to kind of piece together. I think we have the prayer that was done with. I think the prayer is the same prayer done for a deacon. I could be wrong about that. I'd have to go back. It's been, it's been a few years since seminary now. Um, <laughs> and that paper specifically. Uh, but basically what he was doing and saying, making deaconesses, the Patriarch of Alexandria, is that he's making catechists and helping uh, women. Because basically there was, uh, we're talking about a different world, 1,000, 1,500 years ago, where a priest going into a home of women or certain situations, they needed somebody to go in with them or to go instead of them. That was also part of what was going on. So it was unseemly for a priest to go to certain places. So mm -hmm. you needed a deaconess to help. So anyway, I didn't want to go too far, but that that is a reality that that was a, an office in the church, but it did not have the function um, in the same way. We could go off into all, even more details, but let's not <laughs> because we need to do Roman 16. <laughs> So would someone kindly read for us verses 3 through 16 now? Sure, I can read it. Thank you. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. 
Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Her Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Thank you. I think that's been the most difficult passage of the whole course. And you did Why it do you think I didn't say, I'm going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> You'll have to join the choir now for one of those Sundays when we're singing all the names of the, uh, hey, the, the heretics. You did quite a good job. Yes. <laughs> okay, so picking up, first of all, in verses 3 through the beginning of verse 5, St. John talks about how from the book of Acts, we already know the excellence of Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers and whom St. Paul stayed with. And he points out that there we also learn that Priscilla received Apollos and instructed him in the way of the Lord. Um, and it's interesting here, throughout this passage, uh, St. John attributes to Priscilla most of what Acts and Romans say of Priscilla and Aquila. This coming on the heels of the comments about Phoebe, St. John presents this passage as being primarily about the virtues of these two noble women. So in these verses in particular, but really throughout this passage, passage St. John is particularly attentive to the virtues of the women being discussed here and has a great deal to say about it. So where he speaks about Priscilla and Aquila, he generally in this passage, in this homily is going to attribute what they did to Priscilla. Um, and I, I don't know if this is completely obvious to him that you know these were things being done in their household. It would of course been the wife who would have been doing this or you know what his source of insight was, but this is certainly how he approaches it. Um, and so St. John says that here the apostles giving them e even greater praise calling them helpers who shared his labors and dangers. Indeed, that they played the role of martyrs, um, where it says they, they risked their own necks for his life, uh, as those who laid down their lives for the apostle during the time of Nero, a time that was posing thousands of dangers. And indeed, Priscilla and Aquila had already been forced from Rome earlier, along with all the Jews under Nero's predecessor, Claudius. Um, his giving thanks also hints at, um, I lost my place here, at their hospitality and open-handedness. Thus, especially Priscilla, um, or these, especially Priscilla, who poured out their blood for Christ, also opened their property to all. Thus, Phoebe and Priscilla demonstrate their nobility, showing that their being female in no way hinders them in practicing virtue. And St. John says this is perfectly in accordance with St. Paul's instruction in Galatians 3, that in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female. And so having named both Phoebe and Priscilla as his helpers, he also adds all the churches of the Gentiles as witnesses of Priscilla's aid, lest anyone take it that St. Paul is simply flattering her. And he goes on and speaks of the um, the church in their house, and uh, the way St. John understands that is to say St. Paul is praising Priscilla as having made her house into a veritable church, both by making all who were in it to be believers and also by opening it to strangers. 
where he says St. Paul did not lightly call houses churches, saving that praise for those homes that enjoyed much piety and deeply rooted fear of God. And so I, I think this is interesting. Um, you know, we look at this and talk about, oh, okay, so in, in the early days of Christianity, there were house churches, they met in the houses, and yet St. John here reads the apostle as essentially um, using this as a term of praise to indicate that the piety of the household is such, both in its care for the saints and in its being open to those in need, that it had become a, a veritable church. So then I'd like to quote a little bit of a longer passage of, of what St. John says. Again, this is a quote in my usual sense of paraphrasing the sort of difficult translation we're dealing with. And so he says, for a man, even in the married state, can be noble and worthy of being looked up to. Priscilla and Aquila were married and became very honorable while practicing an occupation, tent making, that was far from honorable. Their virtue covered all of this and made them more conspicuous than the sun. Neither their trade nor their marriage harmed them, but they exhibited that, that love which Christ required of them, quote, for greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends, unquote. And they proved their being true disciples by taking up the cross and following Christ. For they who did this for Paul would all the more have displayed this fortitude in Christ's behalf. And that's the end of that quote. Now, are there any questions or comments on any of that? What do you What do you think about Saint John talking that that way? Ex ex just what I mean is kind of exalting women. I mean, I. I grew up in a tradition outside the church that was uh, laud women, but as long as they were quiet, <laughs> basically, because of certain statements in Paul. Um, well, I think, you know, I, I think he's praising them because they're obviously worthy of praise. Yep. Um, but also as a pastor, I think he's uh, he's crazy. he's especially pointing them out both to encourage the women in his uh, under his care uh, to emulate them, and also to uh, instruct the men uh, to emulate them lest they be outdone by them. And in fact, I'm going to read a passage in which he says very much that. Uh, here in the next little bit. So that's very that's that's very uh, timely or from his time to mm -hmm. to do that. Have you read his um, letters to Deaconess Olympia? I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's fascinating his close relationship with her, and just I can imagine that that is probably somewhere in the background that he. And this noted throughout different saints, male saints and women saints who are uh, helping each other, you know, to grow in holiness. So I can imagine that helps him knowing women in his own life that he could refer to, <clears throat> like he does uh, to Deaconess Olympia, no, I forget the letter, but where he mm -hmm. just lauds her for, you know, certain virtues. Right. Well, where he's trying to draw her out of despondency by pointing out all that she has done that you know calls for a, a tremendous reward on her part. Right. Simple clothing. Does he go for like two or three pages talking about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Go go ahead. You're you're going to read a passage, I think. Well, I was I, I was about ready to kind of go on. St. John kind of breaks his thought in the middle of chapter, uh, middle of verse five. So that was sort of a natural break before I went on. Yeah. Go ahead. Don't let me okay. trip you up. <laughs> okay. So this is a long quote by him uh, that more or less is on, 
on the second part of verse five. Um, so he says, well, okay, this, uh, hmm. Did I skip over something here? Okay, because I just said I was about to read something that's not appearing. Okay, so this is actually a long passage on the value of chapters like Romans 16 that are all full of names. Um, and I thought it was very interesting just in terms of understanding St. John's approach to scripture. So he says, pardon me. Even many men who appear extremely good pass quickly over this part of the epistle as being superfluous and not very weighty. And they think the same of the genealogy in the gospel because it is a list of names. Sorry, in, in the gospel. Because it is a list of names, they think they cannot get much good out of it. Yet those who work in the gold foundries are careful even about little pieces, while men who approach the scriptures this way are passing over great cakes of gold. What I have already said should be enough to deliver them from such listlessness. For on other occasions, I have lifted up your soul by such sermons, showing that the gain to be had from such passages is not contemptible. So today we will try to mine more riches in this same place. For even from bare names, it is possible to find a great treasure. If, for instance, someone showed you why Abraham received his name, why Sarah, why Israel, or why Samuel, this would give you many real subjects of research. And you can gather the same advantage from attending to times and to places. For the good man grows rich even from such treasures, while the slothful man gains nothing from even the most obvious, rich, obvious riches. The very name of Adam teaches us no small wisdom, and that of his son and his wife, and of most of the others. For names remind us of several circumstances. They show both God's benefits and women's thankfulness. For when the women conceived by God's gift, they were the ones who gave names to the children. But why are we philosophizing about names when people neglect important meanings and many do not even know the names of the sacred books? Yet even this is not grounds for being inattentive to names and seemingly unimportant passages of scripture. For the Lord says, you should have left my money on deposit with the money lenders. Therefore, even if no one listens, let us do our part and show that scripture has nothing superfluous or added at random. For if these names had no value, they would not have been added to the epistle, nor would Paul have written what he wrote. But some men are so low-minded and empty and unworthy of heaven as to consider not only names to be useless, but whole books of the Bible, such as Leviticus, Joshua, and others. And in this way, many simple men have wanted to reject the Old Testament and continuing in the way that results from this evil habit, evil habit of mind, have pruned away many parts of the New Testament also. I note parenthetically, this seems to be addressed at the Manichaeans and Marcionites. I think the book, the footnote in the translation was saying this. But continuing, but we do not make much account of these men, regarding them as intoxicated and living to the flesh. But let us tell those who love wisdom and spiritual contemplations that even what seems unimportant in Scripture does not appear there at random or without purpose, and that we can gain much even from the old laws. For Paul says, all these things are types and are written for our instruction. For which reason, he also says to Timothy, give heed to reading, to exhortation, urging him to read the old books, though he was a man with so great a spirit in him as to drive out devils and to raise the dead. So that's the end of the long quote. I like Chrysostom's uh, focus he says it a lot, actually. I've heard, I've read him and say the the bit about the importance of every little bit of scripture and not to overlook it. I think he says that probably because there's lots of parts of scripture you read it and you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. That would be my guess as to why, you know, you're reading this, you're just like, okay, I don't know who any of these people are. What am I supposed to do with that? Mm-hmm. And when you see how much he will draw out of a single name or a couple of words, I, I guess you understand then why it is he says, okay, I've given you something to start with. Now you go start mining on your own. Right. Because you would also tell folks that they need to 
when they get home after liturgy on Sundays, they need to discuss at their tables with the family what what the passages were and what the uh, priest said. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously he loved the scriptures deeply and perhaps no surprise that he gets so much out of them and teaches us so much. So getting back to the text in the second part of verse five, um, St. John says it's instructive how much or, or how the apostle assigns his praises to each person. For instance, here he calls a penitus beloved, which announces his excellence. For he says St. Paul does not love out of mere favor, but from sober judgment. This is an idea that will come up again. If, if Paul loved someone, that means the person was worthy of love, of being loved by him. It wasn't just he happened to like him. And where uh, Paul describes him as the first fruits of Achaia, and again, Achaia is a large part of what we would think of as Greece today, um, that uh, St. John says this means either that Epinetus or Epinetus um, was the one who embraced the faith before all others in that area, or that he excelled the others in his practice of it. And he's and he comments, he's not first in civil matters, but he's the first to Christ, um, possessing the true nobility and preeminence, even if perhaps he has low birth according to the world standards. And he is a first fruits, not merely of the city of Corinth, but of the whole nation of Achaia, as if he were a door providing entrance for the others. And so this Epinetus gains riches, not only from his own faith, but also from what others achieve since he contributed to their faith. Came across to me almost like the idea of residual income for multi-level marketing. It's like, you know, he was the one who opened the doors for many to believe. And so he ends up being rewarded even for their labors. Read, you're traumatizing me. I, <laughs> I, my parents were always into those schemes. <laughs> well, of course, I don't mean it too literally, but just sort of that's, that's sort of the idea that I that, that I get. It's like, well, when, when he played such a role in these others believing, then he has his reward not only for his own faith, but for the fruit of theirs. Right. Everybody down the pyramid. Yep. Yep. <laughs> So going on to verse six about um, Mary, he says here, Paul praises Mary honoring yet another woman. And he says, it honors us men to have such women among us, even as it shames us that they leave us so far behind. But he says, both men and women will overtake them if we learn that their adornment comes not from outward appearance, but from their toils in behalf of the truth. This Mary labored not only on her own advancement of the faith, and St. John contrasts this to women of his own day, and maybe he was thinking of St. Olympia, um, many of the women of his own day who engaged in such labors by fasting and by sleeping on the floor. But this, this Mary not only labored in advancing her own faith, but also labored uh, for others. And as he says it, she was running the same race the apostles and the evangelists ran. And he goes on, he understands this to indicate that part of her labor was teaching. And so he says, now, if Mary was teaching, how does this fit in with the apostles instruction in Timothy about I suffer not a woman to teach? And so he goes on and he points out other passages that speak of women teaching. For instance, in first Corinthians, he says, he quotes the apostle, how do you know a wife, whether you will save your husband, implying that the women were teaching their husbands. And from 1 Timothy, he quotes, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, which he understands to imply that the women must be instructing their children. And he takes it from Acts that we learn that Priscilla was even instructing Apollos. And so what he concludes from this is that the apostles' instruction about women not teaching refers to the place of the teacher of all in the public assembly or teaching from the seat on the bema the Bema, or we would probably say the Ambon, or teaching a believing and well-instructed husband, that these are the things that the apostle was talking about, but that on the other hand, St. Paul was not hindering private conversation and instruction, 
or a wiser wife instructing her less wise husband and helping him to improve. Which I thought was a very interesting understanding of all of that. Um, and I, I also thought it was interesting because, um, you know, in the evangelical circles I have moved in, this was a question about women teaching. And it occurs to me, it's a completely different question in that context because you don't even have an altar and an ambon and a bima and the notion of what it means to stand and preach from the ambon. And so it's sort of like outside of that, that context, maybe you can't even understand this passage and uh, talk about how to apply it. But in any case, he goes on and understands that Mary's work involves not only teaching, but also carrying out other ministries, facing dangers, dealing with money and tra tra traveling. And so, uh, quoting him again, he says, for the women of those days were more spirited than lions, sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel's sake. In this way, they went traveling with them and also performed all other ministries. And even in Christ's day, women followed him who provided for him from their own substance. And that's from Luke 8. So, comments about that verse before we go on? Okay. So, into verse 7. Um, well, and I guess I do find it very interesting just because it is such a, a topic these days that St. John has no hesitation in, in praising these women, both of his acquaintance and those he sees in the scripture, very highly and to you know, speak about all of the, the ways that they have served and might serve the Lord, and yet without somehow being entangled in a lot of the modern arguments and ideologies that it's very hard for us to escape in discussing such questions. So in any case, verse seven, uh, talking now about Andronicus and Unia, and he says that these are the apostles' kinsmen. Now, here, um, St. John always reads the word as kinsmen and seems to take it as referring to relations, whether literal or kind of um, figurative or spiritual. New King James keeps translating it as countrymen. I don't know much what to do with that other than to observe there is that difference. Um, so first of all, he says, um, when he calls them kinsmen, this looks like praise. And what follows that is even more clearly praise because he calls them fellow prisoners. And St. John says, now this is not literal because at this point in his life, St. Paul had not yet been a prisoner anywhere, but he had suffered everything that prisoners suffer because what happens when you're in prison? Well, you're separated from your relations and you're a slave rather than free. And Paul had suffered not only that, but much more being, besides, he was an alien to his own family and country. He had faced famine and death and endless temptations, scourging, fetters, stoning, and shipwreck, and plots of enemies. And likely what he's communicating is that Andronicus and Unia have shared many of these same dangers with him. And further, he calls them not merely apostles, but of note among the apostles, so even in that exalted band, the people who were worthy of being called apostles, they stand out uh, among those by their works and by their achievements. And in particular, he notes uh, what great devotion this woman, Unia or Junia, must have exhibited that she was counted of being called by the name of apostle. And then St. John also points out St. Paul's humility, who goes out of his way to mention also that they were in Christ before he was, uh, thus praising them above himself as he talks about them. Thoughts before we go on? We have a junior at St. Anne's. Oh, do we? June suits, yep. Cool. So just going through what St. John says about all of this, I kind of feel like I know these people better now. <laughs> right. So then verse 8, we have Amplius is Paul's beloved, 
showing as above that the man must possess great virtues because Paul's love is impartial. So this must be a man who has great virtue. In contrast, in Corinthians, the apostle speaks of those who live in vice. When he's speaking of those who live in vice and transgression, he anathematizes them, saying, if any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. So again, Paul, uh, St. John makes a lot of the apostle Paul's not being uh, partial in his love. Verse 9 speaks of Urbanus being Paul's helper, which St. John says is even greater praise than being beloved, for it includes being beloved, and also mentions Stachys, who is praised as being beloved. Going on to verse 10, uh, it says, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Those are the words. And St. John says, now this is truly outstanding praise, declaring him to be blameless, giving no room for accusation in the things of God, implying that he possesses the whole list of virtues. And St. John also points out here how the apostle omits all the titles of rank. He doesn't refer to anyone as my Lord so-and-so or my master so-and-so, preferring um, instead to give them the titles that describe their virtues. And he also points out uh, that how the apostle honors all of these by speaking of all of them in the same letter. And yet he doesn't honor them all equally or randomly, carefully giving the praise proper to each. So on the one hand, he doesn't provoke envy by honoring some and dishonoring others. Nor on the other hand, does he provoke them to listlessness and confusion by honoring them all the same when they don't deserve all the same honor. And he's going to pick up more on this idea later. And so uh, then he, the St. John points out, I'm in verse 10, um, where he says, greet those who are the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. St. John uh, says of this, that in greeting the ho that household, he's honoring yet another group of admirable women. And again, I'm wondering here where households are mentioned, St. John seems to keep reading that as being a reference to the women. And I'm wondering if that was somehow um, perfectly natural to his time, that if you were talking about the household, well, it was the women who ran the household. Um, because I know elsewhere, St. John in talking about marriage has talked to the husbands and say, now look, you wouldn't want your wife telling you how to run the matters of the city. Don't you tell her how to manage the household? And so I, I wonder if it really seemed very natural in that time that if you spoke of the household, you were really talking about the women or the, the woman, the wife who was in charge of it. Um, so verse 11, Herodian, he receives the honor of being Paul's kinsman or his countryman. And then he says, the apostle gives a somewhat lesser honor to those who are of the household of Narcissus. Oh, sorry, I said Narcissus earlier. I meant Aristobulus, but anyway, you know, it's Narcissus where he says he doesn't name them. So it's a somewhat lower honor, he, but he does by saying that they are in the Lord indicate that they are all faithful. In verse 12, we return to the women. And so St. Paul mentions Tryphena and Tryphosa who continue not merely to work. He doesn't say simply that they work in the Lord, but that they labor indicating heavy and difficult work. Um, and he also notes that, now this doesn't work in the New King James, but in his translation, their labor is put in the present tense. So Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord, and he contrasts this to Mary back in verse six, whose labors were in the past tense. And so, you know, he in, he's indicating that their labors are current and ongoing. Um, and then talks of Persis, who is also a woman, and he gives her higher praise by both calling her beloved and saying not merely that she labored, but she, that she labored much in the Lord. And so St. John points out that in this way, St. John commends each one precisely, pointing out every preeminence and provoking all to greater zeal by that. 
So his idea is, well, he praises some higher than others, so as to encourage everyone to imitate the better examples and try to outdo one another in their zeal and godliness. Um, verse 13, on Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother in mind. And St. John says that Rufus and his mother are of a similarly great character and their house is one full of blessing where the root agrees with the fruit. So namely the root, the mother and the fruit Rufus are in agreement with one another. And St. John says that St. Paul would not have called uh, Rufus's mother his own mother unless she were in fact a woman of uh, great virtue, unless she was a woman of great virtue. Sorry, misusing the subjunctive there. Uh, going on to verse 14, we have the list of names, simply a list, and then the brethren who are with them. And St. John takes it that this is a list of people who are far inferior to those who have been named up to this point. And yet the apostle is still honoring them by addressing them and by calling them brethren. And in verse 15, we see another list. And, um, and he says that these the people in this list are receiving the greatest dignity and unspeakable height of honor because St. Paul is giving to them the name of saints. And then finally, in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ greet you. St. John says that uh, what the apostle is up to here is he wants to prevent the development of any jealousy. And so after giving each his praise, St. Paul calls them all to the, equal, to the equal charity or to equal charity by greeting one another with a holy kiss. And by this kiss, he seeks to do away with all the arguments that confuse them, all grounds for little expressions of pride, all inclination of the greater to despise the lesser or the lesser to hold grudges against the greater, to dispel all haughtiness or envy. And in similar fashion, he, he sends greetings, not just from one person or another, but from the churches of Christ. And at that point, St. John, that's actually, if I remember correctly, the end of one homily. And he takes this as the launching point for the second part of the homily, which is always sort of his application and exhortation. Um, and then the next homily picks up with verse 17. And I have a long quote about kind of how St. John lays the foundation for that homily, which is very much relevant to the chapter we're talking about. But before I launch into that, I want to give everyone a chance to make comments or ask questions. Does he say very much about the Holy Kiss? No, I've really said about all that he says. All right, just wondering. We used to, that used to uh, figure in um, liturgy, where the clergy do the the holy kiss. That used to be an actual holy kiss done between the members. So just wondering. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the way he presents it, it seems to have very much the feel that you know, if, if people can get close enough to one another to give each other a. a a properly affectionate kiss, then that smooths over a great deal of strife that they might otherwise be be uh, having with each other. But right. he doesn't seem to, to go, you know, to, to, he doesn't seem to describe any practice beyond that. Daniel, anything from you? Well, I was thinking to myself recently that this is good in terms of an example of how to complement each other and um, but otherwise um, I have questions of other topics so not much input for me tonight. Okay. Appreciate your thinking about it. Okay well let me go ahead and give then again it will be a long quote because this is kind of the segue from this passage, which I think in this homily, it covered verses three through 16. And so then after 
talking about verse 16, he begins to make the segue into what he wants to talk about. Um, so let me go ahead and read this again in my sort of paraphrased reading. So St. John says, you see that we earn no small gain from this passage and that we would have passed over such treasures had we examined, uh, I think I left out the word not, had we not examined this part of the epistle with accuracy as much as was in our power. So any man who is wise and spiritual will dive even deeper and find a greater, find a greater number of pearls. But since some have asked why Paul addresses so many people in this epistle, unlike any other epistle, we may say it is because he had never seen the Romans. Yet someone may say that he didn't, that he didn't do it for the Colossians whom he had not seen either. But the Romans were more honorable than others and had come to Rome from other cities as to a safer and more royal city. Since then, they were living in a foreign country and they needed more provision for security, and he knew some, and some had rendered him many important services, it is reasonable for him to commend them by letters. For the glory of Paul was not small, but so great that even from his sending them letters, those who had the happiness of receiving an epistle gained much protection. For men not only reverenced Paul or reverenced Paul, but were even afraid of him. And there St. John makes a long list of examples from St. Paul's letters, which I will omit. But he says, now from all these passages, it is clear that all had a great opinion of him. Wishing then that the Romans should not be uncomfortable in relating to him and that they should be in honor, he addressed each of them, setting forth their praises to the best advantage he could. For he calls one beloved, another kinsman, another both, another fellow prisoner, another fellow worker, another approved, another elect. And he addresses one woman by her title, for he does not call her servant of the church in a generic sense, because if this were so, he would have used the same name for Tryphena and Persis. But he addresses this one woman as having the office of deaconess, and another as helper and assistant, another as mother, another from her labors. And some he addresses from the house they belong to, some by the name of brethren, some by the name of saints and some he honors by the mere fact of addressing them, and some by addressing them by name, and some by calling them first fruits, and some by their coming first in time, but more than all, Priscilla and Aquila. For even if all were believers, yet all were not alike, differing from one another in their merit. Thus to lead them all to imitation of the better examples, he hides no one's, no one's grounds for praise. For when those who labor more do not receive greater rewards, Many become listless. On this ground, even in the kingdom, the honors are not equal, nor even among the disciples were all alike. But the three were preeminent above the rest. So he's talking about the 12 apostles. And even among these three, there was a great difference. For God is very exact to the last. Hence, quote, one star differs from another star in glory in 1 Corinthians. And yet all were apostles and all are to sit on 12 thrones and all left their goods and all traveled about with him. Still, he set apart three of them. And to these very three, he said it was possible that some might be superior. For to sit, he says, on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. That's from Mark 10. And he sets Peter before them when he says, do you love me more than these? In John 21. And John 2 was loved above the rest. For there shall be a strict examination of all, and if you are only a little better than your neighbor, even if by only an atom or something ever so small, God will not overlook even this. And one can see this even from the old covenant. For Lot was a righteous man, but not the way Abraham was. And Hezekiah was righteous, but he was not like David. And all the prophets were righteous, but they were not like John the Baptist. And that's the end of the long quote. But what he's actually leading into with that is to, beginning, to begin with a homily, his, his point being, if God is this precise, this careful about the assigning of rewards and recognizing people's virtues and honor, then it's the utter foolishness, it is utter foolishness to imagine that there is no hell. 
But if he's that careful with the faithful, then what about those who, who, who reject him? And so that, that's really what his, the, the rest of the sermon appears to be about is it's about hell and why we should believe it and work very hard to avoid it. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting, giving so much attention to rewards as a way of stirring us up to be more zealous in our piety and our following of the Lord, because like there really will be rewards. You should work for them. And seeing this chapter as being a real object lesson in that. And of course, Father Daniel, as we were talking about earlier, we see him doing the, that very thing with St. Olympia. Yep. He goes through a vivid description of hell, and then he goes through a vivid description of heaven. I think that's the same letter, isn't it? In that same letter that we were talking about earlier? Probably. Yeah. It was the first, me I remember it being the first media letter in that, that exchange. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then uh, could I ask someone please to read for us? Let's go ahead and do 17 through 24. Okay, I can read it. Um, Thank you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you very much. So here in verse 17, um, having finished with the, uh, the people he's sending greetings to, the apostle begins to approach the Romans gently, beseeching them as a servant would and calling them brethren. And what he's doing is putting them on their guard, warning them to take note of those who cause divisions. And he says this as though those causing divisions may not be easy to discern. And he says, now this is how the devil subverts the church by causing divisions for as long as the body is joined into one the devil has no power to get in but it is from divisions that offense enters and he says well now what causes divisions it comes from opinions contrary to the teaching of the apostles and where do these opinions come from they come from men being slaves to the belly and from other passions so he takes it i think that the mention of the belly it's going to have a more specific meaning later but sort of generally it refers to people who are slaves to their passions. Um, he speaks of the doctrines as being ones that the Romans have learned, showing that the right doctrine is something they already possess and believe. Um, and so the St. John says, so how, how is the church supposed to respond to these mischief makers, these troublemakers? He says, so are they supposed to have a meeting and come to blows? And he says, no, the apostle says, just avoid these men. Now, he says, if some men do these sorts of things from ignorance and error, the church should correct them. But those who are doing it willfully, the church should avoid. And St. John points out other letters of the apostle in which he gives the same counsel. And then to sort of sting those who would behave this way, St. Paul says, they serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, which seems pretty sharp. Um, and he speaks similarly in Philippians 3. Uh, about the people whose God is their belly. And St. John sees in this an intimation that the apostle really has the Jews in mind. And he goes through a number of both Old and New Testament passages uh, that attribute uh, ill behavior of the Jews to their appetites and their fatness and their gluttony. 
though St. Paul seems to be warning the Romans as brothers of Christ against shamefully accepting as teachers those who are slaves to their bellies. And I thought, well, that seems consistent with an awful lot of what we've read in the rest of the book of Rome, or the, chat, the, the letter to the Romans. So he goes on and says, so it's gluttony that is the source of this mischief, but flattery, that is smooth words and flattering speech, which is its means of attack. They use fair words, but the meaning of those words is full of fraud. And yet the apostle closes expressing his warning very gently, saying not that these gluttons are deceiving the Roman Christians, but that they deceive those, they deceive the hearts of the simple, kind of saying, I'm not directing this at you Romans as an accusation, but let me tell you, there are people who will be led astray by this. And then in verse 19, to make his words even more palatable, less grating, he begins to speak of the Romans' obedience. And he affirms the Romans' obedience and how widespread the knowledge everyone has that the, that the Romans are obedient. And so by praising them himself and by giving the world as witness to those praises, the apostle is trying to win the Romans ahead of time to continued obedience to the apostolic doctrines. And St. John has talked about that earlier, how, how the apostle Paul will sometimes try to cultivate a virtue in his flock by praising them as already possessing it. Kind of like, oh, if we already possess that, we, we, we certainly want to live up to what we've already achieved. And he emphasizes here not their mere understanding of the doctrines, but their obedience to them, praising them for their meekness and praising them also for making him glad. Uh, as he talks about, he's glad on their behalf. And yet after praising them, he gives them another warning so that they won't become listless and inattentive, that they would be wise about what is good and simple about what is evil. And St. John says that the way the apostle phrases this seems to suggest that he is fearful that some of them are going to be apt to being led astray this way. And just for my own part, I wondered if perhaps St. Paul is drawing a little bit of a, a contrast here. Verse 18, the simple who will be deceived, and verse 19, those who are simple concerning evil. It's like there is a kind of simplicity I want you to, to possess, but it's not the kind of simplicity that makes you ready prey for the deceivers. But again, that was my idea. That's not something St. John said. So um, going on into verse 20, having warned them of those who cause divisions and offenses, St. Paul speaks of the God of peace, um, giving them hope of an end to these evils because peace is sort of the opposite of division in this case. And he speaks not merely of putting them in subjection, that is those who are causing the troubles, but of um, our translation says crushing, um, St. John Chrysostom's translation said bruising them, and really he doesn't even speak of them, but of their leader, Satan. So crushing Satan, and not merely is God going to crush Satan, but he's going to crush them under the feet of the Roman Christians and under the feet of the believers. So giving the believers the victory and making them noble by this trophy. And then he gives them the further encouragement that this is going to take place not someday, but shortly. And then he ends with, a, with the brief prayer, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. And here I have again, a bit of a quote from St. John. That greatest weapon, that impregnable, impregnable wall, that tower unshaken, for he reminds them of the grace to make them more cheerfully prepared for the labor before them. For if you were originally freed from much more grievous ills and freed by grace alone, so he's referring to you know, coming to Christ, to salvation, much more will you be freed from these lesser ills now that you have become God's friends and contribute your own part. This kind of you know, riffing on Romans 5 again. You see how he neither puts prayer without works nor works without prayer, for he gives them credit for their obedience and then he prays. Thus he shows that we need both, our part as well as God's part, 
if we are to be saved. For it was not only before we came to Christ, but even now, when we are great and in high esteem, that we need grace from him. And that's kind of a good place to break for any thoughts or comments anyone might have. Going once, going twice, okay. Um, and so then picking up in verse 21, uh, Timothy, my fellow worker, and so on, you know, once again, we have the customary expressions of praise. St. John takes the Jason mentioned here to be the same Jason from Thessalonica who shows up in Acts 17, who had welcomed St. Paul. And when the mob was seeking Paul, they dragged Jason out and bring him before the authorities. And um, St. John seems to take it then that Jason was a man of some note that he would be placed before the authorities and takes it that probably all the men in this list are of some note there within the society as well, um, or at least of note for their virtue because St. Paul doesn't mention relations or kinsmen or countrymen unless they uh, practice a piety like his own. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you. And so the, the technical term here is ter Tertius, is St. Paul's amanuensis, that is the one who writes down his dictation. So St. Paul was speaking and Tertius was writing it down for him. And St. John comments, this is also a praiseworthy position just to get to write Paul's letter down. But Tertius attaches his own note, not for the sake of drawing praise to himself, but drawing love from the Romans for whom he's performed the service of writing the letter down. So he sees this as promoting love between the brethren. Verse 23, Gaius uh, receives a great crown of praise here as St. Paul places not himself only, but the whole church as guests in his house. And so again, it sounds almost as though St. John understands not literally that the whole church meets at Gaius's house so much as St. Paul is figuratively praising him by saying, like, everyone enjoys Gaius's hospitality. The whole church benefits from it. And this indicates not only Gaius's generosity, but also his strictness of life, for St. Paul would not have lodged with him otherwise. Essentially, St. Paul wouldn't live with someone who was not virtuous. And St. John understands this to be in obedience to the Lord's instruction in Matthew 10, where when he sent out the 12 to preach, he sat, told them in each place they came to, to seek out a worthy person. And so he's taking it that St. Paul would have done the same and would have found a worthy person before choosing to lodge with him. And so Saint, uh, so Gaius must have been a man worthy of Paul's excellence. St. Paul also mentions the title that Erastus holds, that is, he is the treasurer. Uh, it says here, or um, St. John's translation was the chamberlain of the city. And he says, so why does... Paul do this? Why does he mention this title? And he says, well, first of all, it's to show the Romans that the gospel had also found a place among the great men of society. And again, this plays a bit into the sense that Rome is the imperial city. It's a great city, and this mattered in the ancient world. And so, you know, the people were very concerned about their honor. And so to have honored men, noblemen, believing the gospel would have meant something to them. But, but St. John says that Paul also mentions this to show that neither riches nor the cares of government are a hindrance to right life and faith to a man who is heedful. And so as he shown us earlier that um, you know, being married is not a hindrance in piety and godliness, so also holding a responsible government position with all the cares it brings is not a hindrance. And again, in verse 24, we have the, the line exactly repeated, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. And so St. John comments again, the apostle repeats this prayer for the grace of our Lord. And here I will quote him. He says, see what we ought to begin and end with everywhere. For in this, he laid the foundation of the epistle. And in this, he puts on the roof, simultaneously praying for the mother of all good things for them and calling the whole of his loving kindness to their mind. But this is the best proof of a generous teacher to benefit his students, not only by word, but also by prayer, for which reason someone once said, and this is quoting from Acts, but let us give ourselves continually to prayers and to the ministry of the word. 
that the preaching and the prayers go together. And with that, we're done. Because St. John's manuscript has this doxology that we have here before us as verses 25 through 27 at the end of chapter 14. And so we actually discussed that in our discussion of chapter 15 at our last meeting. So in God's mercy, we're done except for such comments as you all might like to make. I like your grammar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Reed. That was, we did, what, 17 weeks, 17 recordings, basically? I think so. So we are now through the Book of Romans with Chrysostom. So we'll have to talk at some point, see if we want to do something else, uh, another Bible or study or something, but or also discuss if we're going to use Zoom or how we're going to use it, because going forward, we'll see. I think Wednesday nights will probably still be for us um, some kind of continuing education. I just got to decide what exactly to focus on. And it'll basically be at the end of the summer because the next month and a half is a little crazy. So, well, I know well, we're I'm going to go, go ahead. I was going to say, we're hoping to be back at Wednesday Vespers again now that, you know, COVID has declined and some of us are vaccinated and, um, you know, I hadn't known how to juggle doing that with also doing the study. And so now that that's over, we're really hoping we can start being back regularly. Excellent. Well, I'm going to go ahead and stop there our recording here. Sounds good.